Good morning and welcome to Tuesday morning, February the 14th in 2023 on When I Rise. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Today we continue year A and the Sunday coming up is Transfiguration Sunday. And so on the Tuesday of the week, we'd like to take a look at the Psalm passage, which comes to us from this week from the Revised Common Lectionary in this week of the church's calendar year. There's actually two Psalms this week, so we're going to cover one today, one tomorrow on that Wild Card Wednesday. And so today we'll go to Psalm 2. Let me read that passage, provide a couple points for reflection, and then we'll spend our time praying along the theme that we find there. Thanks for making us part of your morning on When I Rise. Let's allow our souls to rise and meet God together in a time of prayer. Psalm 2. Why did the nations rant? Why do the peoples rave uselessly? The earth's rulers take their stand. The leaders scheme together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Come, they say. We will tear off their ropes and throw off their chains. The one who rules in heaven laughs. My Lord makes fun of them. But then God speaks to them angrily, and he terrifies them with his fury. I hereby appoint my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will announce the Lord's decision. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Just ask me and I will make the nations your possession. The far corners of the earth will be your property. You will smash them with an iron rod. You will shatter them like a pottery jar. So kings, wise up. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord reverently, trembling, kiss his feet. Or else he will become angry and your way will be destroyed because his anger ignites in an instant. But all who take refuge in the Lord are truly happy. This is the word of God for us. So I've been enjoying uh, going to some familiar scriptures, ones that, I'm, that I've studied or that I've preached on is some of my favorite spots in this new translation. So I'm using the common English version this year, probably for the next few years. And so it's fun to go to these places and uh, to read again these things that I'm so familiar with because they come from different uh, angles and different perspectives and it sheds new light. And so this one other testament, how this is always going to be the living word for us as the people of God. So Psalm 2 is a king psalm. There's a, a handful of them, maybe nine to a dozen of them. I mean, I think there's some debate on what some are king songs and some that are not. Um, and some of these psalms are, the kingly psalms are interesting. So they might have been used on a coronation day. It might have been a way in which to praise God through the establishment of a king. It might also be a teaching psalm uh, to those who are kings to remind them of what faithfulness looks like. And so this is the earliest in the Psalter. And uh, Psalm 2 is mentioned several times in the New Testament. Probably one of the more memorable ways in which it's used is in the book of Hebrews. If you can remember in the book of Hebrews, it is a long sermon, a sermissal, a sermon and a letter, an epistle uh, smashed together term that I've coined here on when I rise, the Sir Missile. Um, and so what uh, the writer Hebrews is trying to do, this is according to scholars, is not just to go to Old Testament passages where it is written, but where it is spoken, right? So there's like this, these two voices, um, maybe several more, but there's two dominant voices in the Old Testament speaking of God, the written word of God, and also like where God speaks. 
And so what you'll find is the Old Testament references in the book of Hebrews are the ones where God speaks. And so here in Psalm 2, God is announcing something. He's announcing a Messiah installed upon a holy hill, right? And so what's going on here? Um, there's there's this vivid scene of the nations conspiring against God, and they show this, this great um, disinterest in God, uh, contempt for God's ways. And so one waits on what God's response is going to be. And so God's response is that a king would be installed. Now, it's just worth noting, and if you get the book Manna and Mercy from Daniel Erlander, this is the shortest source to get this uh, shouting match that happens in the Old Testament. But it's almost assumed that the kingship is something that God always wanted, right? Because there's so many parts of the Old Testament where there's a king installed or where God makes a fuss over David and his family. Uh, but if you go back to how a king emerges in the midst of the people of Israel, like God's kind of against it at first. If you go to First Samuel chapter 8, God gives in. He concedes to Israel's desires to want a king, right? And there's like this great tension. As God's speaking to Samuel, the prophet, he's saying, this is nothing to do with you. This is Israel's uh, argument against me, and they want a king. And so God reluctantly gives them a king. It actually creates tension between Israel God and God. But we get to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, and we see that God is fully on board for kingship. He wants to back David and back David's family. Gives this great promise that there's always going to be a representative from David's family line upon the throne in Israel. Right? This is the key of David that we see place like Isaiah uh, chapter 22 and so on and so forth. Right, And so as Israel began to reckon with some of the big questions of, of their religion, which is how, who is this one creator God and why does he call us to worship him? Why did he call us to be his unique people from all the other nations? And then how's God going to fix the world that God so loves, right? Because he's its creator, right? So how, how is all this going to take place? Um, their religious discussion, their devotion, their prayers, their songs all begin to coalesce around this idea that God is going to install a king who's going to be faithful. And so we see it here in Psalm 2, that God's going to install a Messiah, uh, an anointed one, uh, a rescuer uh, right in the heart of Israel that will be God's representative and will ultimately lead God's people uh, to a place of not only their national restoration, but also like this dominion over the earth. And this really does uh, fulfill a couple of longings that we see in the creation narratives in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3. God desires co-regents, someone to work alongside him in the governing of the heavens and the earth, the earth in particular, which is the place where God has placed human beings, right? And so he wants this partnership. There's a default to that partnership. And so God's working back towards that. So even though the story is going forward, we're not going back to a garden. But according to the end of the book of Revelation, we're going to a city that's teeming with life and people and, and development in the midst of it. Like what God is going back towards is trying to reestablish this vocation of the human, that someone would be faithful before God, that we would execute justice, and that we would co-work with God for God's purposes in the earth, that we'd be faithful. And so Psalm 2 envisions that this is going to be in the heart of a king installed in Israel, right? And there's going to be sense where there's not just going to be any other king. That's someone who's extremely gifted that God raises up. But there'd be a familiar, a familial bond. This would be like a sonship. God would look upon this one as the son. And so as Christianity emerges from uh, the Jewish story, uh, we see this all coalescing now around Jesus of Nazareth, who was described as God's son at his baptism. 
and he continues to be this faithful son of God. And as Christian theology began to articulate the great mysteries of, of incarnation, cross and resurrection and the teaching and the healing ministry of Jesus, what we find is Jesus is not just someone that God adopted along the way, but this is the eternal son, the one that came from the father, embodied all of God's ways and ultimately leads the whole world to salvation and to relationship with this one creator God. And so there's so much that we can see here. And there's also this part at the end that we have to address that there is coming a time when God is going to execute final justice in the earth. God is looking for people who are faithful to him. And so there's this governing question, like how does God then deal with those who resist being in, in God's redemptive work. So I just go to C.S. Lewis here. I just love how he says that there's two people. There are people whom God say, uh, say to God, your will be done. And then those to whom God says, okay, your will be done. And even though God is patient and in his mercy, God continues to suffer long with the people of the earth. There's coming a moment where we're going to live once, die once, then face judgment, and then there's going to be a reckoning of all things. Now, Christian theology has a few different uh, conclusions of what final judgment might look like, which stem from, you know, maybe a post-mortem development plan called purgatory and and, uh, purging, all the way to the eternal conscious torment and judgment in a fiery hell. And so there's all these different uh, perspectives in between. I'll leave that up for you to decide because there's so many perspectives that stem from scripture, from Christian theology. I just want to know, I just want you to know that the one that you and I might embrace is not the only one out there. And so let's have a little bit of patience and a little bit of an open mind with those who might disagree with us on that finer point of doctrine. But ultimately, there's this call at the end of the psalm, kiss the sun, which is a, a term for worship. So kiss towards the sun, adore the sun, because he's making the world right. He's chasing off injustice and he's producing this right worship and conduct before God in the earth, which allows it to flourish under God's care. And so because of that, we adore the son and we put our trust in. So with those things in mind, let's spend some time praying to our God this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we adore you today because you did not let this world that you love spin out of control to be left without an answer, but you are seeking to redeem it from the middle of all of its problems and its pains. So we thank you, God, that at the heartbeat of that is a benevolent and humble king, the one that we call Jesus, the risen one. And we thank you that you saw fit to include us into his life, into this, this work that is cascading to the ends of the earth. And so we thank you that there's coming a day when you're going to put everything to the rights, um, where there's going to be accountability, where there's going to be justice and mercy and healing and wholeness within the earth. And so God, we pray that we would see a picture of that today, that we'd see lives put back together, relationships restored. We pray that there'd be advances in the healing of our bodies, and we would see it as a signpost for this new creation that's dawning down the road as you see fit. And so God, this day, as we line ourselves up behind this humble King, we pray that you'd make us more like Jesus so that uh, people in our lives would, they would um, just appreciate our friendship, that they would understand that we are looking out just not for our own needs, but also for the needs of others. Then to be another signpost of the healing and restoration of all things. And so we pray, Jesus, that you draw near to us as we draw near to you and make us more like you today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.